Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth, and freedom will be defended. Welcome to part two of my chat with retired Metropolitan Police Commander Bob Broadhurst. During his career, Bob faced many challenges in senior management, none more so than when he was summoned to appear before the government who wished to review in detail the public disorder during the country's holding of the G20 summit. Disorder which resulted in the death of a man, Ian Tomlinson, who had attended the gathering of protesters and who had been pushed over by a police officer. He'd hit his head and died a short time later after he had walked away. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. You moved out of that uh, Commander Southeast, uh, Southeast London role in 2006 and spent between 06 and 11 as the, goal, as the commander for public order across London. What uh, was the defi defining moment or factor which influenced that move? Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, it, going back to Dinger, Dinger Bell's world, you know, that day back in Peckham, you know, don't bother with the TSG song, you know, aim for the top. Um, <laughs> I, I suppose like a lot of, you know, a few other like-minded people, I, I, I really did enjoy the public order world. I, I enjoyed the nature of the work. I enjoyed the camaraderie. I enjoyed the challenges. You know, I enjoyed the teamwork. Um, but... As much as I coveted it and would have liked it, I, I, I'm a firm believer in horses for courses. And at mm -hmm. the time, so we're talking 2005, um, John Stevens was commissioner. 
good yeah. guy though he was. I mean, I've already said he he probably can't be saw me as a you know a little bit of a lightweight in some respects. And and he was clearly nurtured. Well, Mick Messenger was commander of public order at the time. Um, and, and many of your listeners, certainly those that have been in or around the Met, will will, will know of Mick Messenger. And to me, he was a god, uh, and still is. I see him quite regularly, uh, and he is one of he's just one of life's really you know fantastic people. Um, but he was Mr. Public Order. Um, but he was quite clearly grooming a guy called Joe Kay. Again, another friend of mine, you know, a peer colleague, another fascinating character. And the Met throws up these fascinating characters. Um, Joe, Joe was part of that Westminster cabal, along with uh, Chris Allison and others, you know, who, who, to be fair, did most of the, the big and challenging public order jobs because it's all on their doorstep. Um, and, and I'd never had the opportunity to work with, with those guys in Westminster. Uh, and that, that was great. You know, everybody knew Joe. Everybody could see that Mick was lining him up for the next job. Um, the, the, the sad bit for Joe and probably Chris, who was probably going to be second in, in dibs after Joe. I, I think John Stevens hung on a little bit longer than, than intended. He finally did retire and uh, Ian Blair came in. Mm-hmm. Um, Ian Blair, for whatever reason, I, I'd worked with Ian Blair back in, uh, in on that SIP report back in the late 90s. Um, and for some reason, I, I got the nod to be commander of public order. So I never applied for it, never put in for it, thought someone else was going to get it. And then mm-hmm. I get you know a phone call from Steve House, who... In those days had changed to the new central operations as was um but of course I, I i was delighted to get it and then i spent the really the last five years of my career is heading that up and then ultimately my final gig was the olympics so let's talk about the the pressures associated i've been very lucky to speak to quite a number of senior officers you know one i reflect on regularly is neil basu's career as head of counterterrorism and the stresses and the stresses and the pressures associated with what would be, you know, one of the greatest challenges that we've faced in the past couple of decades with regards to responding to incidents. But equally, public order, and as you say, what is often seen as kind of quick levels of disorder, brought back to normality relatively quickly with the way we manage it so well. I think arguably the UK and the Met is seen to be one of the leaders globally in responding to public order events, managing public order situations and being able to bring back communities to a level of normality relatively quickly. And it's a framework that I think a lot of forces around the world look to as aspiring to be as good as. Um, But let's talk about one of the first biggest events arguably that you oversaw as a gold commander, which was the G20 summit here in London. The ancient streets of the city of London filled to the sounds of anger. It was predicted and promised by some. As thousands reached the Bank of England at its centre, it erupted. After three or four surges, they managed to move through the street, attack the RBS building, smashing one of the windows, when riot police came in to secure that area. Now they're bringing mounted police in from the rear. They're going to box them in, and it's brewing up here. We don't know what might happen next. Thousands of people have been involved in this first day of action. For many, it was simply a show of solidarity, not violence. The, the challenges around G20, if you can tell us about what G20 was, what it required and and some of the, I suppose, more controversial parts of the fallout from it and the death of an individual during one of the protests slash riots which occurred. Yeah, the the G20 was an interesting case study in in many respects. It it came at a time when, if I'm right, Gordon Brown had recently taken on the Prime Ministership from Ian Blair and we, we remember that kind of frosty relationship the two had. And I think part of it was was Gordon Brown trying to 
make a name for himself, you know, within politics and internationally. So he called, he asked for the G20 to come to London, which is fine. Um, and I imagine that having made that decision, then his advisors in Cabinet Office Home, you know, Home Office Number 10, start putting the Prime Minister's bidding together. Unfortunately, on this particular job, and it had some resonances with other big jobs that we did, there was little or no liaison with the police. So they just decided when it was going to be and where it was going to be. Um, and, and those two decisions actually gave us huge headaches. First of all, when it was going to be, they hit on the 2nd of April. Now, historically in the in the UK, as you know, over, over many years, the 1st of April um, became, you know, a, a April Fool's Day, but it had become a day of protest and a, a kind of a day of ironic protest, saying we had Fossil Fuels Day, you know, and, and, and other kind of things on the same theme. But big protest days up until that year. This particular year... Um, there was nothing really on the radar. You know, I, I was going in and just speaking to the Intel people, saying, well, what, what have we got coming up for April the 1st? Oh, well, nothing really, Governor. It's all pretty quiet. We think we're going to get away with it this year. As soon as he announced that the, the G20, so the world's 20 top economic countries, you know, their leaders are mm. coming to the UK, kapow, you know, the, the, the balloon went up and we just got, you know, inundated with stuff on social media about protests. Well, thanks very much, Government. You could have asked us. We'd have told you to put it a week later or something. Meanwhile, London's Metropolitan Police is gearing up for what they've defined as an almost unprecedented level of activity. There have already been some demonstrations in the capital. Thousands marched peacefully on Saturday. But there is concern that protests planned for Wednesday and Thursday may turn violent. Their, their second big mistake is they chose the Excel Centre to hold the um, conference in which is fine, but they hadn't done any research. So when you go down to the Excel Centre, I don't know if you know it, but it, it's a massive building that has a North and a South conference halls. Yeah. Well, they only wanted the South conference hall. They hadn't realised that there was another big conference on at the same time in the in the North conference hall. It was actually the British Pain Society, and it really did bring on the pains. Well, it cost government something like £300,000 to buy it, because we said, look, you, you can't have the G20 in this side of a building and... God knows who else on the other side. You just got to cancel it. So three hundred thousand pounds to buy that out. Um, then Gordon Brown wanted to stand at the, the doorstep on the quay side as every all the presidents, prime ministers came in. So we had to build a ballistic wall because it's overlooked by the old wharf on the other side of the lock, the the, the dock. Yeah. Build a ballistic wall for two hundred thousand pounds. The ramp wasn't strong enough down to the car park to take the the prime the, the U.S. president's beast. So they had to build a new ramp for the car park. And the only way to have a plan B to evacuate them was to hire one of those Thames clippers every day. So before we'd even started, the bill had gone to over a million pounds for security because there would be no consultation. Anyway, that's by the by. But, but essentially at the time, Oliver, the, the, the G20, bear in mind it was the, the 20 top economic countries plus another 20 top leaders from things like the EU, the African Union, the World Bank, and so on. I mm. think we had something like 40 protected people coming to London for that week. And although the conference was on the 2nd of April, they were coming, most of them, throughout that week for a series of bilaterals. There were receptions with the Queen, receptions with Prince Charles, receptions with the Prime Minister. So an awful lot of security movements. A very British royal welcome to the United Kingdom for Felipe Calderón, the president of Mexico. 
He was one of the first world leaders to arrive in London for the G20 summit, along with the Australian Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd. The Met, of course, doesn't have enough protection officers to protect all those people, and it certainly doesn't have enough, you know, SEG motorbike, you know, special escort group motorbikes and other stuff. So you had this weird thing of, if you were walking around London in those days, you'd see motorbikes from all over the country, police officers trying to learn the streets of London, um, <laughs> of Pat. But, but, but we started planning, obviously, a security operation for the G20. And that's what it was, essentially, a large security operation. On the day before it, we had these planned protests in central London around Fossil Fuels Day and all that other stuff. And they were really big, several hundred thousand people. And again, we have to remember the history of London, going back to, um, I think it was J15, but back in the city, when the city got trashed because the Met and the city had a joint operation, but we had two control rooms and didn't actually join it up. Ever since then, there'd been a, a fear for what was going to happen in the city. We'd done our best to play down the fact that right, there'd be protests, but it won't be violent. Um, the media took the other spin on that and started to hype it up with there's going to be all sorts of violence. Cut a long story short, the day before it, we had some really big protests outside the Bank of England um, and the Carbon Exchange. We had the, the climate campers who came in and camped on Bishopsgate, said they were going to be there for 24 hours. We, you know, led by Mickey Johnson, who was the silver commander, um, sorry, the bronze commander on the ground, I think Peter Terry was the silver commander, or Ian Thompson. We, we managed this, this huge demonstration outside the Bank of England, put in a big containment on it, a tried and tested technique in the Met, um, put a containment in, only allowing people out. So in other words, you know, big public order events, you've really got two main choices. Either you, you disperse everybody, you get rid of your crowd, or you contain them, let them out in, in little bits if you're worried about, you know, trouble. Um, the containment in itself became kind of controversial, the media and, and the, the, the protesters called it kettling. In other words, the police kettle us until the, the temperature inside you know, the, the kettle gets so much it, it boils over. As police sensed an area was getting too dangerous, they moved in reinforcements, men and horses. The police obviously decided that this part of the Bank of England is becoming a little bit troublesome and they brought the horses in. Of course, the crowd have now moved towards them, which is scaring the horses, and it raises the temperature, if you like. In other words, in their mind, a deliberate police technique to provoke the crowd in, into violence so that we could just bash them up. Ridiculous, but, you know, that's how the media portrayed what they were saying. So, a degree of controversy over that. Within that incident itself, um, they had legal observers on the ground, one of whom was my old MP from, from my days at Sutton, uh, Sutton and Monington, an MP called Tom Brake. Nice enough guy um, when I was working with him, kind of turned against me a little bit here. But he, he well, someone came up to me and allegedly had seen two burly men in this protest, this large protest that was being contained, um, whipping up the crowd, getting the crowd to, you know, to, to kind of start attacking, you know, getting annoyed at the police. Um, and once you got this, this crowd up to feed the pitch, these two big men were seen to go up to an officer in the court and show him something and be let out. Ergo, they were police officers who'd whipped up the crowd and been let out of the court because no one else was being let out of the court. They must, so they're saying they're showing their warrant cards? Yeah, showing their I, warrant I cards. Assume, anyway, yeah. mm. I, I'll nip back to that story afterwards because that, that comes out in the aftermath later on. So 
We manage that containment. We then go to Bishopsgate, where we've got several hundred people, climate campers that have been camping overnight and are going to be there for 24 hours. They'd already been told that they would be dealt with. As soon as we finish with the containment, Mickey Johnson gets his, his men and women over there and we start to make arrests here and end up arresting all 300 of them. Get two or three London buses in, fill the buses up and take them to the outskirts of the Met. That was Mickey Johnson's way of dealing with everything. Fantastic, but it worked. <laughs> Those climate campers, you know, just as inside, they, they took the Met to, to court and that ended up in the European courts and actually came back in our favour. Because if we'd lost that, then your containment of football matches up and down the country would have been unlawful. So, But that's just an aside, but an example of the pressures you're under when you're doing public order jobs. And most of the big jobs I did in London, we were taken to either judicial review or ended up in court somewhere. And that was one of two of mine that ended up in the European courts. Um, can, I, can, I ask a, can I ask a quick question, Bob? In yeah, terms of the, in, in terms of making the decision to either contain or disperse, is that decision made based on intelligence prior to the event occurring or as as the event is going on and you can start to see body language, you're getting images coming down from you know the helicopter which might be above, you've got troops on the ground that are feeding you intelligence. Are you making that decision then and there or is it a predetermined course of action? No, it'll be made then, then and there. It, it can't be a predetermined course because otherwise, you know, you're predefining mm. what, what's going to happen. But all yeah. public order events are, are intelligence driven. So yeah. certainly the intelligence that's coming in beforehand might have a play in that if, it, if it's saying that people are going to join it with a view to mm -hmm. doing this. Um, the, the, the bottom line is, you know, you're looking at that all the time. Those are tactical decisions. So they're, they're decisions being taken by the silver commander in liaison with the bronze on the ground. Because this is an interesting point when you come to, to, to gold command. So I, as the gold commander, would go, you know, I, I'd, I'd be in my little nice quiet room with, with my, my fridge, my, my coffee, watching the rugby on the telly, doing the crossword. And every now and then I'd go into the silver suite that was bedlam, absolute bedlam, and, and say to the silver commander, why have we still got a containment in? And he would say, well, governor, because, you know, he'd give me his criteria based on his decision logs, based on facts that he knew at the time and intelligence. And then all you get in my decision log was I've reviewed the containment and I'm still happy, you know, that, that it is signed off mm. by me. The hard work, the hard yards are being done in the silver suite and on the ground. And it's it's intelligence driven. And the, and the main reason we put a containment is that, that crowd was so volatile. If we dispersed them, we'd have had the situation we had a few years before where they would have just trashed all different parts of London. Mm. Because that was part of the intelligence picture that was coming yeah. in. That these people, you know, were up for it. So containment was absolutely the right thing to do and it was properly managed. Of course, when you start to review it afterwards, you know, bless them. So these people have got to have toilets, they've got to have water, they've got to have this, they've got to have... Fine, fantastic. And, and the Met learns, which is why we debrief everything, put stuff in. So, so but, but that was an aside. Later on that evening, as everything was calming down, so most of the protesters are now starting to be moved away, I, I get a nudge from someone behind me, Governor, there's an incident happening. We think a guy's dying. Pan the cameras in. And bear in mind, in London, in the control room at Lambeth, the Met has access to every CCTV camera in London. Not only its own, but every local authority camera can be taken over and managed from Lambeth control room. So we wow. pan in on this guy. And I saw a guy called Ian Tomlinson, guy in his sort of mid, mid to late 40s, being worked on by two, two police medics. And I swear to this day, I saw bottles being thrown at them. Um, turned out not to be the case. But in my decision log, I, you know, I, I make an entry because I'm, I'm now told he's just died. A man has just died. 
um, within the footprint of my operation. Basically, I don't know how it's happened. Might be a crime, might be you know heart attack, might have been sorted by police for all I know. Um, but I'm making it a crime scene, exactly the same as you would with an unexplained death on your beat. Hmm. Bronze crime, a detective chief inspector, get yourself down there, sort out the crime scene, grab the, the CCTV, do the stuff. But of course, that now gets referred to the police complaints authority, as was, uh, and effectively, you're then neutered about what you can say and can't say. And I thought nothing more of that. So I put that to one side. Protest finished. The next day was the day of the, the conference itself. But because of our robust, I'd like to think, our robust policing on the day before, very little protest on the day of the, the G20, and they all flew off. So so on the Friday after Friday evening, when the conference had finished, the last of the delegations took to the, I think it was the Chinese, the last to fly out. Um, I get, I'm in the command room. Still been there for a week, you know, and generally for these big events, we'd sleep in London overnight, stay at hotels. So just don't go home, just manage the operation. Um, so a week in a hotel, Friday afternoon, you're a little bit tired. The last delegation's gone. <sighs> Time to breathe a sigh of relief. Phone yeah. goes. Commander Broadhurst? Yeah, it's a woman's voice I don't recognise. I've got the Prime Minister on the line for you. So I'm just about to give it, yo, bloody tears, G. You leave me alone, you know, put the phone there because it's the kind of prank that they wouldn't play on you uh, <laughs> when Gordon Brown comes on the line. Wow. You know, and, and, you know, Gordon Brown, you know, Mr. Broaders, thank you very much. Um, fantastic operation. I know how hard it's been for you all week, all sorts of other issues. Please say, call your men and women. I don't think anybody else but the Met could have done this. So, again, write it in the decision. <laughs> you know, Prime Minister, thank me. And actually, if you look at the, the, the media coverage for that week, it was very positive about how the Met, not just the Met, but our, you know, the, the city police, British Transport Police, and now I think we had a few mutual aids in as well. Um, it, even the disturbances were, were positively reflected upon. Yeah. Cut a long story short. So that finishes on the Friday. Monday morning, I go in the office, um, and there are 4,000 Tamils have taken over Parliament Square. While the Sri Lankan government issues a 24-hour ultimatum to the Tamil Tigers to surrender, thousands of British Tamil protesters blockaded Parliament Square to call for a ceasefire. It's day 14 of the protests, the focus of which is a student who is on a hunger strike. Such is the intensity of feeling one British Tamil is prepared to starve himself to death in protest of what he says is genocide. In my eyes, the people are dying in the, in the bomb and shelling. Do you remember it was the time of the Tamil Tigers when they uh, yeah. killed a load of people back in Sri Lanka? So literally, Trafalgar Square was gridlocked. We're trying to manage it, um, cops on the scene, and, and Sri Lankan people are jumping into the Thames to try and kill themselves. <gasps> so you've got a really you know, serious... So, so I become gold for that, and that rumbled on for the rest of the week. So in, in the middle of the week, now having done a week of G20, a day off back in now a week of Tamil Tigers, still not doing my day job because I'm, I'm gold, I get a tap on my shoulder from our um, press liaison officer, uh, Anna de Vries, who says, Bob, you need to look at this. And she shows me a um, clip from the Guardian website. Yeah. Now, apparently this is a clip that's been going around social media. Now, we have to reflect on social media back in 2009. My view, Oliver, the Met, the police service in general in the UK was really, really slow to embrace the importance of social media, how it worked, how young people were using it as a medium. 
I, I was totally on I didn't, you know, I didn't use my mobile phone for any of this. Um, but essentially, you know, the, those of your listeners that, that would have seen the clip, it shows a picture of Ian Tomlinson um, wearing a Millwall football shirt, obviously drunk, walking along the street with his hands in his pockets, being a bit of an ass, but nothing more than that. And he gets pushed in the back by a police officer, hits the deck, cracks his head, and subsequently dies. This is the crowd at the G20 protests on April the 1st, around 7.20pm. They are on Cornhill, near the Bank of England. This footage will form the basis of a police investigation into the death of this man. Ian Tomlinson was walking through this area, attempting to get home from work. Minutes after this was shot, Tomlinson collapsed and died further along the road. Now, you all know the story. It turns out that that was a police officer from the Met who was later um, acquitted at court of manslaughter, but later sacked by the Met. Uh, another backstory in that, but, but that, that, that was the issue. Suddenly, and this is how public order work can just change, you know, in a heartbeat, what, what was being reflected on as, as a really positive policing operation, with the Prime Minister ringing me to thank the men and women of the police service for a great job, has suddenly become the worst policing operation ever committed by the Met. Um, Paul Stevenson was commissioner at the time, and in his undoubted, you know, brave attempt to, to, to stem the really negative criticism, he invited HMIC in to conduct a review of public order policing in the Met, and that the spawned inspectorate. several other reviews. Yeah, the HMIC's inspectorate, led by Dennis O'Connor at the time, mm-hmm. um, who came in and did a really thorough review on public order policing, um, of which, of course, all the recommendations came back to me. But in the interim, Ian Tomlinson, you know, his death is now being investigated by the Police Complaints Authority. I was interviewed under caution for four or five hours um, because potentially, you know, did my strategy in any way lead to his death? And that's that's quite an unsettling feeling to be interviewed under caution for a job that, but, you know, that you thought had gone well. By your colleagues, ultimately. Yeah, but... but yeah, by my, my colleague, you're obviously working for the BCA, but yeah, police officers under caution because potentially you're going to be going to court for this, you know, um, potential crown court. So th- that gets managed out. But then on the back of that, I then get invited to go to the Home Affairs Select Committee, chaired by Keith Faz. Now, mm-hmm. again, just backtracking a little bit here, but I, I already had a history with the Home Affairs Select Committee and Keith Faz going back to 2008, the year before, the Beijing torch relay. You know, your listeners may remember, you know, came to London. And again, all of this has to be put in terms of my own career. I was head of public order. I was the guy who was planning and would be leading the Olympics in 2012. So, you know, a couple of years time. Um, And like any Olympic cycle, once the previous Olympics are over, all the attention, global attention, world attention, media attention turns to your city. And in our case, mm. to, to the Met. And the basic question was, could the Met do this? Are the Met good enough? Is London good enough? Is the UK good enough? Our media love that, don't they? They love to see people mm. fall down. For some, I don't know why, for some reason. Um, but anyway, in 2008, if you remember, the Beijing torch relay came to London. It was on a world tour. Um, we were expecting protests, but it's a 26-mile route through London. It was snowing for some reason in April. But as soon as the torch came out of Wembley Stadium, it was attacked by Chinese protesters, Falun Gong and, and Free Tibet protesters, and was attacked for 26 miles thereafter. So I got called in front of the Home Affairs Select Committee on that, um, and, and 
if listeners have ever seen a, a, a select committees, it's basically split on political lines. So on the left of the room are Conservatives, on the right room are Labour, there's the odd Green Party and SNP, but it's chaired, this particular one, by Keith Vaz. And we all know Keith Vaz's back history, I shan't go into that. Um, mm. But, I, I, you know, I, I was supposed to be there with two other people, one from the Cabinet Office, one from Home Office, they didn't turn up, so it's just me. And, and you feel like a, a kind of political football being kicked from side to side as two political parties argue the toss. Um, but then I was asked a question by one of these people, I think this is where I upset Keith Vaz. I was asked, so bear in mind the torch relay is protected by the country of origin of the Olympics. So in this case, the Chinese police. So a group of Chinese police were following this around the world and they're entitled to run alongside it. Our job is just to create a bubble around them to protect them. Anyway, if you remember some of the footage, some of these Chinese police officers in their sort of PE kit um, drag some of the protesters out of the way. Uh, it, it all gets a bit um, unwieldy. But one of the politicians said to me, so, Mr. Paulus, why did you allow these Chinese thugs on the streets of London? And I said, well, I didn't. You did. They said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, you, HM government invited the Beijing torch to come to London. Um, you invited the Chinese police who protect it to run on the streets of London. I was just mm. doing your bidding, basically. That didn't go down well with the politicians to actually realise that you know, they were grilling me when actually they were the ones that should have been under the spotlight. I think that affected Keith Vaz. So during the, the Home Affairs Select Committee following the G20, um, Paul Stevenson again was commissioner, um, was doing a great job. And Tom Brake raised this issue of Argent Provocateur, i.e. these two burly guys that we're seeing going out, and, and basically alleged that the Met had sent plainclothes cops in to, to get this crowd annoyed so that we could just go in and have a fight. Absolutely ludicrous, you know, um, and, and really unworthy of politicians to say that. But, you know, your point earlier on, they've got their own agenda and they don't care mm. how many people they hurt along the way to get their agenda out. So, so Paul Stevenson is, is doing a really, a really good job of answering this question. But I'm sitting there next to him, you know, like the kind of lad up that I am thinking, I haven't got any plainclothes cops on my, my operation order. You know, even where we have intelligence officers in public order terms, they're always um, overt, they're always there to be seen. You know, we're not hiding anything. What I hadn't thought about was the dark side of the Met, you know, those other bits of the Met that had their own job to do. And, and there were undoubtedly some SA-15 and other officers probably in the, in the crowd mingling. But, but I, I said quite categorically at the time, no, this is what's happened. You know, no plainclothes officers, that killed that bit and we moved on. Anyway, cut a long story short, uh, and I lecture on this when I lecture to the senior, you know, gold commanders in, in, in the, the police college. Probably the following year, um, so several months after this, I was up north. Bear in mind for the, the London Olympics, I was also responsible for the torch relay team. So Met officers accompanied that relay all around the country. And we know how successful and how good that was uh, and how exciting. So I, I've been up with, with some colleagues in the Midlands talking about torch relay, jumped back in my car, turned my phone on, and I've got dozens and dozens of texts from my mates, my old colleagues, you're a good guy, but keep your chin up, you know, we know you're okay. It's a bit odd, what's all this about? Yeah. From my public order colleagues, you know, can I have your boots, can I have your job, you won't need your car. Thanks, <laughs> mate. Right? And then I get a text from the force chaplain, Jonathan Osborne. I think, well, wow, now I'm being led the last, read the last rites. So uh, I go back to Scotland Yard, um, in, into, I get called in by the assistant commissioner, 
and her deputy, two, two female senior officers, that, that's by the by. Uh, and we're sitting there and the six o'clock news comes on and I am the lead story of the London bit oh, about shit. how I've lied to Parliament, you know, Bob Broadhurst lies to Parliament, boom. Um, Jenny Jones, who was the EPA, comes on the news saying I should be sacked. Um, but there's no senior officer standing up for me. So I said to my boss, I said, well, okay, that's fine. You know, I can explain all of that, uh, honest. Um, I said, but why didn't why didn't you put up a senior officer just to say, look, obviously a mistake, Bob's a good guy, this can all be explained. And and my boss, he said to me, well, Bob, we don't know, do we? And I said, don't know what? And he said, well, we don't know whether you lied or not. Oh, At which point I got me. up and walked out of the room. So I'm not getting supported yet. But I got called back in and like, you know, sheepish little schoolboy went back in. But this is just another of the kind of pressures that you're under when you're managing that job, because I, I, I still hold to this view despite that. And, and I think I know what they meant, but they put it rather clumsily. Um, but I wasn't looking for, you know, hugs and kisses. As Commander Public Order, my role is to make sure that, that the, the men and women of the Met can do their job on the streets. Hmm. Um, and if you're the gold commander, for very good reason in the Met, they've changed it since, and I think wrongly, but only commanders or below, you know, chief superintendents could, could be gold commander. We didn't allow DACs or ACs or commissioners simply because they were too senior and too near the political bits. Yeah. Um, so, so my role was to basically to defend the boss. You're, You're there. The yeah, I'm the buffer. Commissioner, you know, whoever, they've appointed me, God, they trust me. And this is what I say to, you know, aspiring gold commanders. So you can never blame upwards because you're gold, you know, mm. your, your name's on the can. You can't blame your command team because you selected them, you put them there, they're working to your strategy. And you can never, ever blame the, the people on the ground because they're only doing what they're told to do. Yeah. Sometimes they overreact, they've got to explain that, but for the most part, so, you know, like Tim Godwin said that time, just, you've just got to take it on the chin. Uh, and that's what he said to me. So, you know, I, I got recalled to Parliament um, had to write another long statement, <laughs> another statement. I got more complaints as a commander than through the rest of my career. I'm telling you, I got dozens of them. <laughs> um, but basically went back in front of the Home Affairs Committee, gave a grovelling apology, you know, in public, um, which, you know, wasn't great. But at the end of the day, we got the job done. But that, that became a kind of a millstone around my neck for the rest of my career. And of course, you still got three years to run before the Olympics, and that gets brought up in the same way that you know that the poor old Cressida Dick, who was the best police officer of the third generation by a long shot, always gets related back to you know John Charles the Menneth. Whenever you talk about Cressida, that will that that's her kind of albatross, as it were, you know. And this was mine, you know, my my black swan moment, as I called it. But is there? <clears throat> Is there an argument or a conversation that should be had, arguably at a very senior level, that you should have known or someone should have told you as the goal commander that there were going to be plainclothes officers or is there stuff that you just shouldn't know about? You know, how yeah, can you... no, you're, you're absolutely right. And, of course, all that comes out in the wash. Now, one of the yeah. best things about public order policing, and, again, you know, I lecture on this and I'm fortunate to be around the world. I do a lot of work in Lebanon where I've redesigned their public order bit. Um, but every every public order job, no matter how big or small, should be debriefed immediately mm. Um, mm. or as soon as possible. And, and the main reason for that is so that you learn the lessons so you don't put people in, in challenging positions next time round. You know, you learn your lessons, you move on, you improve. Um, of course, I should have known that there were more Met officers, but, you know, my, my fingerprint should have been all over that. that I, I hadn't asked the right questions. 
And one of the things that came out in the debrief or you know, in the aftermath of this is that in future, for any big operation like this, SO15 and others would be asked, you know, have you got people out on it? I don't yeah. need to know what they're doing. I just need to know that they're there. Um, the, the, the bottom line, you know, it, it was my fault. In an unguarded moment, trying to protect the commissioner, I blurted out something that I probably should have thought a little bit about more. You know, I, I probably wasn't as well prepped as I should be. It's nothing more than that. But actually, that, that one little comment just gets thrown out of all proportion because it suits the politicians. It was literally a storm in a teacup. Um, but for me, it could have been career-threatening. And for the for the Met, it's embarrassing because it's just another thing for them to pick up on. And, and that's the challenge. The, the, the challenge for me about public order policing is, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that the decisions that public order officers make are any more challenging than a, than a, than a guy or a girl investigating a murder or child abuse or fraud or whatever else. But they all play out in the public domain. They're the only mm. policing decisions that are being played out live, on air, as we speak, in public. And that once you've committed to them, there's no going back to rewrite them, you know, which is why we write everything down. You know, every decision should be logged. Um, and, and that's the challenge. That's why you need, you know, public order people are, are those practical, common sense, boots on the ground people that are willing to make the tough decisions there and then and live with them. Just quickly reflecting on what I often describe as the unsung heroes behind every successful man or woman in uniform, such as yourself who's climbed through the ranks and been so successful, is the support function at home, you know, husbands, wives, children, you know, partners, you know, being there during the good times and the bad times. What support network did you have in terms of family when you're appearing as a leading news story at six o'clock? You've got family seeing this stuff. How, they rally around you and say, listen, it's OK, dad, or it's, you know, it's OK, son, it'll be fine. You know, how do you that's really important to be able to get through those challenging moments in your career? It, it, it is. I, mean, I think, first of all, you can over egg this. You know, annoying though it was, it's kind of it goes with the turf, as yeah. you know, and, mm. and to be honest, some of us kind of wear these things with a little badge of pride. It's a great story to tell later on. But but it is annoying when you're seeing your name on the news and, and in every newspaper. And, it, and it, I know it affected my wife quite a bit, and she got a yeah. bit annoyed about it. The children, well, they were in their mid to late teens at the time, if I remember rightly. For, for them, it was great. You know, I had a Wikipedia page. Wow, how, how many... You know, that's really cool. You know, my dad's got a Wikipedia page. I don't care that they were saying nasty things about me. I just had a, I didn't even know what Wikipedia was at the time. Um, um, but, but yeah, you know, for me, this, this, this was annoying. I know for other officers, you know, that we're, we're, when you're really under the cosh, that, that support background of family, friends is essential. But going back to one of your earlier points about some of the stresses that police officers felt, far too many of us don't share these issues with family when we get home. You know, we, we like to... Mm wipe the memory, you know, go back with a clean slate for family. I, I did, you know, that, that that commute home was, was where I deloaded whatever I'd done at work and I never took stuff home. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, it, it, it was one of the few things that did annoy my wife because, you know, my name kept coming up. I kept saying, oh, don't worry about it, you know. Um, they can't sack me, you know, they might move, well, I suppose they could have done, but... Um, you know, I, I often look back and wonder how I managed to get through that period from you know winning the Olympics to actually being the Gold Cup commander for it without losing my public order post at least along the way. Is there in in that position of Gold Commander when you're dealing with, as as we've described, very brave men and women operating in a very tense environment? Is there a lot of 
is one of the stresses and anxieties you have as to how those people are going to carry themselves. Obviously, this officer has pushed Thomason over. He's cracked his head. He's died as a result of his injuries. Is there a sense of sadness or frustration that somebody has died? Probably not. No, no need to have done so. Obviously, your reliance on the skills and the professionalism of the men and women that you're leading under you, demonstrating that professionalism that we expect of them, that must be a challenge and probably one of the greatest things that keeps you up at night in terms of overseeing large public order events. It does, but it's no different from every every other policeman operation. Every senior officer trusts on, on his, his men and women doing their job properly and you know, to the best of their abilities, whether they're beat officers, you know, PCSOs, murder mm. squad detectives, that, that, that's ingrained in us. I, th- I think for me, the strength of public order policing, um, and again, I major on this when I talk around the world is, is that you're all part of that same family. You all undergo the same training. You know, from from yeah. our first days of doing our shield training, you mm. know. So so the shield run, if you remember, predicated on the distance running <laughs> between the feeding centre out to you know whatever road it was that six hundred metres is based on that run. Yeah. And you had to pass it in whatever it was two minutes and ten seconds, whether you were a PC or the commissioner. And if you failed it, you lost your ticket until you got fit again. Um, so, so I know exactly what the PCs go through. I used to go down to Graves, even as a commander, once or twice a year, uh, take off my, my epaulets and run as a PC. And I took the epaulets off because they throw bricks at you if they saw, you know, your, your yellow epaulets. <laughs> but I would run as a PC and I would carry the long shields and I'd do all the dirty stuff that they did. Uh, and that's a great way of just reminding yourself that this stuff is physically tiring, mm. physically necrotizing. But, but similarly for, for my command teams, we all do the same training. We all have to do the same, you know, three events a year. To stay on the card, you have to do three public order events a year minimum. You have to do at least one day shield training at Gravesend, and you have to go to a public order seminar. If you don't do those elements, you don't keep your ticket. Um, so, so one of the strengths of it is we are all trained to the same standard. We all know the same rules. And for me, one of the reasons I so much enjoyed public order policing, Oliver, is that for the most part, being a senior officer is a lonely existence. You sit in your office at the top of the building and no one ever comes and talks to you unless you go to them, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to know, you know, if, if you go to a you, know, you go to a function, you know, like the piano player stops when you're in the room. Um, <laughs> nobody wants to let their hair down when the boss is there, you know. So which is why you, you pop in, you have a drink and you go because you know you're, you're deafening the, the fun. Um, in public order policing, you are front and centre of the operation. You know, you, mm-hmm. you, you can go to the feeding centre, you can eat with the, tr- the troops, if I can call them that. You know, you can get out and about and ask some questions. You're in the control room at Lambeth with, with like-minded people. And and again, you know, my, my colleagues in Lebanon and other countries can't believe that as a commander, I might have a PC as attack advisor, a constable telling me not what to do because you can never, you know, only the commander can make the command decisions, but actually mm-hmm. advising me saying, you know, giving that little look that goes, wouldn't do that if I were you, Governor. Or, or, <laughs> or something, you know, that would be a very brave decision, boss, you know. Um, <laughs> But, but that, that, that's the joy of it. And the, the other joy of it was, and we've touched on this, policing is about humour. And probably nowhere else, in, you know, other than the public order, it, it, does that come out at the forefront? And I knew, you know, if, if things were going well, if PCs were taking the mick out of me and playing little pranks on me, i.e. never put your hat down near a TSG PC, because you know it's going to disappear, or it's mm-hmm. going to end up with those little white things from the hole plunger in it when you put it on, you know, that, that's part and parcel of being the commander, you know, but but we love it because of that, because we're all in it together. So I, I 
have to trust those officers to do what they're trained to do and do it properly. If they step out of the line, and I think this is sometimes what the public you know, don't see, if an officer goes native on us on a public order event and really lays into somebody, well, you can't defend that. There's no way we could defend the guy who pushed Ian Thomas on the back. It was outrageous. And every cop who saw it said, that's outrageous. Let him swing. You know, he's on his own. But if things happened that I thought happened, and I suppose, you know, looking at that, that uh, G20, one of the issues was, you know, uh, when things had happened, you, you get to ask on it. So, so I'm asked to comment on some of the, the alleged violence, you know, the, the robust policing, you know, officers with batons. And I said quite openly, I said, look, I haven't looked at every piece of footage, but I've not seen any officer do anything that I didn't train them or tell them to do. So I take the blame for anything, you know, that goes wrong. And, and I've got a really nice note from the Federation saying, you know, it's, it's great to hear someone standing up for us. But that, that's my role. Of, you know, I, I create the conditions. And by that, as head of public order, not only did I get to do some good events, but I was head of policy, doctrine and training. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, training standards are set. I expect every cop that goes on their training to abide by those standards. And actually, public order people are some of the best, you know, in the event at not overreacting because they're trying. And their teammates will sometimes say, oh, if Christ's sake, put your ban away. I don't need that. You know, back mm -hmm. off. They are really good at that. And I self, trust them to do self -policing. it. Self-policing. It is, absolutely. I want to talk about, um, outside of this event, obviously the Olympics was a huge public order event for you to oversee, but one that I think I wanted to kind of round off our chat with is probably an issue which affected not only London uh, as an issue which spiralled out of control very, very quickly, but across the country, and was a focal point around the police's relationship with communities of all backgrounds, but specifically the black community, was the 2011 Croydon riots, which um, occurred uh, and would probably bring away for some time in terms of tension between police and communities. But ultimately, the, the trigger point or the flashpoint, we should describe it, was the, was the, 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 the lawful police shooting of, of Mark Duggan in Tottenham in 2011, which then... Um, you know the ramifications we, we all obviously remember from the, the scenes of Croydon on fire and, and, and looting. London's burning and no one seems able to bring it under control. As night fell, a huge blaze lit up Croydon in the south of the city and it spread quickly with no sign of police or firefighters in the vicinity. Neighbourhoods previously untouched by the rioting of the past three days are now joining an ever-growing list of unruly suburbs. The jury looking into the death of Mark Duggan have been told they must decide whether it was absolutely necessary for armed police to fire the fatal shot. Well, the partner of the man whose death triggered the weekend's riots has told Channel 4 News that the protests against his death have got out of control. In her first television interview, Simone Wilson denied that Mark Duggan was a gangster and criticised the police for their lack of communication with his family. And you were the day commander. It'd be interesting to understand the difference between the night commander and the, and the daytime gold commander. That event in 2011 and what was an incredibly serious level of disruption and public disorder we'd seen for a long, long time. Absolutely. And, and probably one of the seminal moments in London's history, because I genuinely believe we were within a day of anarchy and totally losing control of the streets of London. It was, it was that serious. You know, but back to your point, particularly, you know, your critical point there about a daytime gold and a nighttime gold. 
to be honest, we don't normally have you know nighttime goals. You know, not many events go through a 24-hour period. If they do, you know, gold would probably be on call. Um, uh, on this occasion, again, it's quite funny. Literally a week before, you know, that that fatal night uh, in Tottenham, I'd given up the role of commander public order to concentrate on the Olympics. So, so again, as I said earlier on, for the first five years, I, you know, I planned and worked on the Olympics alongside a day job, um, yeah. as if it was another event. Um, but I'd handed over to to a, a really good guy, a really nice guy called Simon Pountian, uh, again who'd coveted the job. He now becomes gold public order. On the Saturday of the shooting of Mark Duggan, um, which, which happened, I think, early evening, didn't it? Yeah. I'd actually been at Twickenham because it was just before the Rugby World Cup, um, 2011 Rugby World Cup. And I'd gone to Twickenham with a few friends and some Kiwi colleagues who coming up to do some coaching. Wasn't pretty jump, but I had a good night. Um, got home after a curry, as usual thing, sort of one, two, one o'clock in the morning, something like that. Four o'clock in the morning, the phone goes in, it's Simon. Bob, you've got to come in. And I went, well, what for, mate? He says, Tottenham. So what, what about Tottenham? He said, it's kicked off, haven't you heard? I said, no. So I, I had not had a clue about the rioting and issues that have gone on the Saturday night. Because, you know, why should I? I'm not involved in it. Anyway, they, they very kindly sent a car to dispatch me. And I got to the yard about six in the morning. By which time, this was on, you know, the Sunday morning by now, because it's kicked off on the Saturday night. By which time all the, the rioters in, in Tottenham and those other parts of London nearby that are kind of sparked off at roughly the same time, had probably finished their, you know, their, 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 their looting, their rioting, their mocking about it, and had gone to bed. And again, we talked earlier on about every public order event should be public order driven, because in spontaneous events, with, with no level of planning, you've got no intelligence. The mm. only source of intelligence was social media, people's mobile phones. And of course, if everybody's asleep, there is no intelligence. So Sue Wilkinson, and you know, a fantastic officer. She was acting as bronze, uh, bronze intelligence, and she came in, you know, early planning one. Bob, we got no intelligence, but you've got to start planning for that. You know, something's going to happen, so you've got to start planning. It's a Sunday, where the Mets resources are at their lowest anyway, for good and obvious reason. It's only your shift workers who are on duty, and a few TSGs. The Met does have a mobilisation plan, which is which is a plan to literally, as it says, and you know, mobilise. Level two resources in particular, um, so so every barrier division is meant to have a carrier on standby with with some equipment, and every every shift is meant to have a quota of shield trained officers. Yeah. That's the, yeah. that's the plan. Like most plans, it never meets contact with the enemy. Um, so the mobilisation plan hadn't particularly worked. So we didn't get enough numbers, and we probably could only muster about four thousand cops that day. Which is the size of two small forces, but you still get criticised for it, and it's never near enough. It's a lot of people, but it wasn't enough to deal with what was a growing problem. Um, mm. and, and if you look at the, the, the heat map of where the disorder occurred, you know, day by day, on, on the Saturday night, it obviously concentrates around Tottenham, North London, and a few of the you know the the town centres around that neck of the woods. If you then look at Saturday's map, it spread or Sunday's map rather it had spread to about two-thirds of London. And the map for the rioting on Monday night was, I think, all bar three boroughs had serious disorder within it. So virtually over three nights, it went from a contained North London rioting issue, which was bad enough, you know, akin to Brixton back in, in the early 80s or Tottenham in, you know, in the mid-90s on Broadwater Farm. This was bigger on the Saturday night. It got even bigger on the Sunday. And by Monday, it was all of London. And we just didn't have the resources to cope. Um, but, you know, I, I'm trying to manage the daytime stuff. 
basically with no intelligence, no foresight. Simon Pountin and the night duty team was coming around about six o'clock. We'd do a handover, by which time the kids, you know, and it wasn't just kids, but, you know, it was, it was starting to come back out on the streets and more rioting was happening or standoffs were happening. But I genuinely believe that th this is not rioting. This is not a disaffected, you know, community so put upon by authority and government that they feel the need to actually riot on the streets. That, that may have been, the, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was probably the spontaneous cause. And I'm sure members of the black community will say, well, actually, you know, a lot of things haven't changed. So, yeah, we, we can understand perhaps the initial trigger point, the initial violence that, that first night. But therein after, and of course, it wasn't just contained to the black community or the young community. Fr from what I was looking at, this was just criminality gone mad. It was looting to the extent when when Sue Wilkinson came in on the Monday morning and I said, right, what we got tonight? She says, well, according to social media, it's going to be almost every high street and every shopping mall across London. And on that, that Monday morning, we took the decision. Tim Godwin, who was acting commissioner at the time, sat down in the planning meeting and said, well, you know, mobilisation plan has failed. You know, we've got mutual aid coming in, people coming in to help us. We've just got to turn out every cop in the Met. Whatever they're doing, they've just now got to be turned out to a town centre somewhere. Bearing in mind, we didn't have enough shields or shield equipment to, to protect everybody. But we put about 16,000. Imagine that, 16,000 police officers on the streets huge in one day. Huge numbers. Huge. It's huge. That, that, that's bigger than every other force combined, probably. You know, um, It's like Manchester and Liverpool sending every cop. We had mutual aid. We had some great support. But, you know, you imagine these poor old, you know, Back in the day, you know, collators and, 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 and other people just stick your uniform on, crime squad, stick your uniform, get out there and do your very best. Um, I, I remember that night, you know, I, I'd been driving home. I, I was meant to be on holiday in Greece that week, but obviously the day it happened, I had to cancel. My wife and kids went, left me on my own. I remember driving home. I, I live in South London, driving over Crystal Palace. And the Crystal Palace parade, there were about four carriers of, of police from central Scotland. And these were some of the biggest cops I've ever seen. And they had people across bonnets of cars. They had cars on pavements. And, and literally, Oliver, I drove home thinking, we've lost it. I, I literally thought, we have lost London. I don't know what to do anymore. You know, all that training in public order, and, and it's just rioting everywhere. And, and, you know, here's a funny story. If you remember, um, this all got a bit out of hand. Um, the Prime Minister and Boris, who was mayor at the time, had both been on holiday, both out of the country both abroad yeah. on that weekend, both flew back short term on the Monday. So on the Monday, the, the Prime Minister has got to make a kind of a statement. He's got to show that he's in charge. So he asked for a photo opportunity in the control room at Lambeth. So he David comes to Cameron. Lambeth. David Cameron at the time, absolutely right. So he comes and sits next to me in Lambeth and takes credit for saying, I have just come back. I'm now in control. I've got a grip of the situation. We're putting 16,000 cops on the street. And I looked at him and I looked at other people and I know Tim Godwin was fuming about this because it was a police-led decision. It was Tim Godwin's decision having spoken to Hugh Ward, who was chair of the Association of Chiefs Police Officers. Um, but he, he took that decision. Fortunately, that 16,000 cops on the street, and I think largely because of, you know the community themselves, you know, the public, actually turned the tide by saying, you know, getting a grip of these kids, getting a grip of these looters, and almost policing themselves if you remember people were coming out and sweeping the glass helping stuff out i think the good you know the good people of london came out and dealt with the riffraff probably as much as if not more than the police we had all that stuff going on in the courts 24-hour courts that tim godwin set up 
say virtual courts, people were getting it. We nicked hundreds of people and thousands afterwards. And as Tim Godwin said, and here's the rub, if you remember, during that week, we had Olympic test events running, beach volleyball on Horse Guards Parade. There was an uh, England game at Wembley and we had the cycle race out of London on the Sunday. And we had a visit from the IOC Commission. So remember, everything we do is being looked at in the eyes of Huge. the Olympics. Tim Godwin said, look, you know, we filled the police courts, not the hospital beds. Meaning we nicked people, took them to court. We didn't just bash them up. Um, mm. And for the Olympics, we said to the IOC, look, this is the most severe rioting we've had in London in decades, if not, you know, living history. And we managed all of that. And we still managed your test events and, and nobody noticed. You know? Incredible. But it was incredible. You know, here's, Rob, here's the funny bit. So in, later in the week on the Thursday night, I'm at home on my own. You know, family enjoying themselves on some faraway Greek island. Getting home <laughs> about seven, eight in the evening, you know, having a quick meal, lying in the chair, going to bed, getting up at four to be back for the next shift, you know, life of the public order commander. And there's a knock on my door about 10 o'clock. And there's a bloke at the door with what turned out to be his son and daughter who just moved into, you know, the little estate where I live. And he starts going on that bay about, you know, they've just been abused by some kids up the street, you know. And I said, well, have you called the police? Yeah, I've called the police. Uh, didn't do much. Then. I said, well, why are you banging on my door at 10 o'clock at night? Because I've seen you on the television with the Prime Minister. What are you doing about it? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know? And I think, oh, my God. You know? oh. So, so, so these are the things you get with being a gold commander that the public never see. But it, it, it was it was a seminar moment. It, it was a dreadful time. Um when, when anarchy, it wasn't really anarchy because anarchy needed to degree is organised. This was just looting. But I think, you know, as a society, when you look at the, the, you know, the ability of how quickly people went feral, and, and you, know, you, you had people looting, coming out of shops and then being mugged for the television they just nicked, you know. Um, but it, it, at the end of the day, Oliver, it was the good people who started to turn in their own families, you know dobbed people for having televisions in the front room, you know, we, we managed to claw that back, but it, it was touch and go. Do you think, <clears throat> you know, we spoke about it was just this massive criminality. Do you think it was a, a culmination of a period of austerity and unemployment and, you know, maybe the, the, the Mark Duggan inc incident was just the tipping point that caused this just significant outburst of disorder? I mean, I'm no social scientist, and I'm sure people will pour over this and look at it. But if you think about it, we, we've had a worse period of, you know, um, austerity since then. Yeah. Know, much worse. You know, we're going through another of those really, you know, the, the current situation is probably nothing like it, you know, back to the, the early 70s, you know, the winters of discontent. But, you know, certainly the times were tough. Um, people were feeling the pinch. It, um, it started off, you know, Probably, you know, the Met did get some things wrong and there are still strained relationships with certain communities across London. Um, that, that that probably was a legitimate spark and we didn't handle that well enough. Perhaps should have got on top of it. Um, but it just seemed to me that very quickly, you know, just spiralled into a kind of a, an almost apocalyptic feral nightmare where suddenly everybody saw, you know, his opportunities here. The police are really stretched. The police just aren't coping. Let's just go round, and they were literally just putting windows in and stealing stuff. And then, if the police did turn up, just having having a go at them. Um, but but I, I generally remember that time on Crystal Palace Parade, just thinking with all that experience, all that stuff that we've done, all that teamwork, 
all mm. the Met expertise of the Met supported by other forces, and we just you didn't seem able to stop it. It was it was probably one of uh, well, he's now Lord Hogan Howe, but Commissioner Hogan Howe's greatest challenges when he came into the Met in terms of kind of he was very much in the mopping up stages and making sure and trying to rebuild those relationships and improve what they could in developing a foundation. I suppose sort of rounding out this conversation, which has been incredibly fascinating on some of the challenges that London has faced, which has led to some of this level of disorder. What do you think are the biggest challenges for London in making sure that we don't have a repeat of something like that? Or is or, or is it like anything? These things are inevitable every so often. Tensions boil over, it, it, it explodes, and then we go back to kind of a level playing field again and it brews up again. What, what what are the things that we've got to do to try and avoid such things occurring again in the future? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I don't think things are inevitable. because you know, With hindsight, we could yeah. all look back to that, that night in Tottenham and perhaps if we'd done a few things differently... You know, this is your black swan moment. It's your, it's your sliding doors moment, isn't it? Maybe mm. none of that would have happened. But but again, if you look at the history of London, if you read any books on London throughout its history, London is it's called violent London. You know, mm. um, as police officers, we'd have all policed those lines. You know, violence uh, and disorder and the threat is always there under the surface. Um, we see it every Saturday at football. You know, you rarely get the old 70s or 80s style, you know, problems at football matches anymore, post Hillsborough in particular, because the stadiums are, you know, much better dealt with. But every Saturday the Met runs, you know, a thousand police officer strong operation to manage football fans transversing across London and fighting each other. Every Saturday and Sunday, you know, every Saturday certainly of the football season. It still happens. So so that violence is always there. It's always bubbling. Um, you know, and you add to that recessions, you add to that austerity, you add to that some political issues that you know the, the tendency for people to take the streets is always there which is why i'm still amazed that public order policing is still only a, a, a you know a hobby alongside busy day jobs but but what are the factors well it for me it really comes back to you know, if we're just looking at this from you know purely policing terms it comes back to good honest old-fashioned policing values of policing communities mm. every disturbance every right every public order event takes place in someone's community yeah. And the more you understand those communities, the more we, we, we speak and talk to them, and the more they trust us, you know, trust and respect their, their, their local police, the, you know, the, the better those relations are. And sometimes those are being strained. And my fear at the moment, if you look at, you know, some of the current issues, is that relationship has, has been drastically weakened over the last few years. Communities no longer see the police. They're not, you know, they, they, they don't talk to them. They don't have those same rapports. The, the, the issue is, you know, they're always bubbling in the background. We, we don't currently seem to have the, the the ability to quickly nip them in the bud from a community point of view, you know, potentially. If What do you think Mark Rowley's greatest challenges in the next few years as the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police Service? I think his greatest challenge is trying to reset that, that police-public relationship. You know, he, he wants to, and quite rightly so, because we're, we're proud of this, he wants to go back to that Peelian concept of, you know, the police are the public, the public are the police. And there's yeah. no doubt about it, you know, rightly or wrongly, that, that relationship is strained, certainly in, in the public face and the media side of it. I think underneath the surface, you know, most people still respect and, and, and work with our local police, but we've lost our way a bit. I think what, what, what Mark Rowley's trying to do or wants to do is get that respect back, go back to those basics, re reset the paradigm almost, um, I know he'll be looking at some of that niche policing. Have we drifted too far 
you know, t towards public opinion and performance and away from actually th the less tangible bits about serving the people, actually being with the people. Um, and and that, that's a real challenge because, you know, to, to spend an hour or two with a little old lady just to reassure and help her means an officer not on the street doing something else. Um, but then so does to sitting in an office, you know, crunching numbers and doing lots of stats and other bits of bobs, you know. That, that, that for me is the challenge. It almost needs a root and branch look and say, what are we doing and why are we doing it? And, and for me, you know, go back to your, probably the early days in the Met. Do you remember those big old maps of the Metropolitan Police? There's a little so. black triangle for every police station. And mm. if you look to that map superimposed on the communities, there was a police station in every community of London. Now, not to yeah. say that, you know, times weren't violent or tough in those days, and I know we can't go back, but when I joined the Met, the Met was the third largest landowner in London after the NHS and the Duke of Westminster, <laughs> right? Now the Met has got less than 100 buildings. You know, you've got wow. super boroughs, you know, three boroughs joined together, running out of about three or four police stations. Nobody has a canteen anymore, you know? They're, they're, like, they're like hen's teeth. Um, I'm not saying these are necessarily bad things, you know, and I know some of it are economically driven or politically driven, but somewhere we seem to have lost the shape of what, policing should be about you know policing should be about serving your communities doing what your communities bid them to do less about performance less about you know cost of, of doing some of this stuff but of course those are political issues and you can't separate the two i think that's that's mark Rowley's biggest challenge is to regain you know the the esteem well when people say metropolitan police new scotland yard you want them to go i was part of that you don't want to turn away and skulk in a corner because you're embarrassed to hear that. In 2013, you were awarded uh, an OBE and you're also the recipient of the Queen's Police Medal. Um, two honours, which are, I have no doubt, ones that you're incredibly proud of receiving. Um, the OBE was in recognition of your services to the London Olympics and the, the Queen's Police Medal recognises exemplary police conduct and service uh, and commitment to the organisation, along with other uh, areas. Must have been very high, huge high points to exit the service with in 2013 after you retired. Uh, it, it absolutely was. And, I, and I, I'm old school. I took that oath to the Queen in 1977 and I reread it, you know, sadly just after she died and i still believe in that i still believe you know i joined to serve the people of london i'm a london boy born and bred and everything i did was about service and i think service is something that's being forgotten in this day and age too many people know about me and what what i can get rather than what can i do for others and i think that is the great strength of policing and i the, you know the, the young people i see joining the job this day and age they're not all young anymore but you know that they want to serve, they want to make a difference. And I was incredibly proud, you know, both for the QPM, you know, my dear father was still alive when I got the QPM, the Queen's Police Medal, which probably means the most because that was the personal gift of the Queen and only a handful are given out every year. Probably far too many are given out to senior officers rather than you know, the guys and girls on the ground, but that's that's a story for another day. The, the OBA, again, you know, being a staunch monarchist and loving, you know, having served the royal family, I suppose, and protected them for many years, Again, meant an awful lot for me. And again, that bit about support, be able to take my wife and kids to the palace. But but let, let's not forget, you know, the OBE, what it, what it really means, you know. Um, it means other buggers' efforts. You know, I, I got the OBE for the Olympics. I, I didn't do the Olympics, you know. The Met did the Olympics and, and many other people. It, it was a team effort. 
Um, and that's what I love about Public Order Police. You know, it, it was a team effort. I just be, I was just the lucky one who got his hands on the trophy first. Um, not enough people got medals after the Olympics, as far as I'm concerned. Lots of them got commendations, um, but it's not the same. But that, that's that's one thing out of our control. But generally, I, I think you know, I, I got the OBE for the Mets efforts, and I'm proud of that. And I'm proud of that. You know, not just the Olympics. I'm proud about everything that the Met does around public order and the way it goes about it and the way it manages the streets. And long may that continue. Well, uh, Robert Broadhurst, recipient of the OBE and the Queen's Police Medal, uh, it has been an incredibly fascinating just over two hours conversation hearing about the trials and tribulations of your 36-year career, you know, the highs, the lows, the successes, some of the learnings, and uh, I appreciate and thank you for your honesty and openness into into what has been a remarkably detailed and uh, incredible career. So on behalf of um, my team and I here at the Protect and Serve podcast, thank you ever so much for your service. Thank you. Thank you ever so much for coming on the show. Uh, and, you know, we know you're doing an awful lot of work outside of policing now and continue on that good public order work. And we wish you all the very best in any future endeavours that you pursue. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much, Oliver. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. <laughs>